Ask folks to remember the number to call is Beer Belly 643000. Easy. <laughs> That's great. You, I really love it, but you got to have that thump, thump, thump of the bass in there. I know. He'll be back. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn back to Proverbs again, chapter 4. Last week, if you remember, we started uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and we began to uh, look and develop, I think, probably the single greatest concept for not only churches today, but for also Christians today, the importance of Bible doctrine. And um, we're going to take last week, this week, and next week, and really kind of put a three-part series together out of that passage here because I think it's absolutely vital that, uh, that we understand this. I told you last week that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 14, that the job of the church, uh, first and foremost, and the job of Christians is to take a stand. Uh, chapter 6 of Ephesians talks about the whole armor of God, and we're told to put on the armor of God, and all the seven pieces of armor are listed there. But uh, it's, a, it's a great chapter that talks about the fact that four times in the first couple of verses that we're told to stand. And I think churches today, along with God's people today, that's part of the problem. They don't want know what to stand for. And we talked about Proverbs getting wisdom and understanding, and when you get it, you know, we now know that it comes from what we began to look at last week, good doctrine. And I explained for you how that's found in the Bible. And we defined doctrine last week, probably in a way that we've never really done it before. We now know that the word doctrine means to teach, but not just a teaching on anything. Doctrine in the Bible represents a specific teaching that the Bible lays out. And when we as God's people or as a church, me as a pastor, when we teach the Bible... When we lay out the Bible, whatever we do, it needs to be based on Bible doctrine, the truth of the Word of God. And uh, it, we also learned last week that when you have Bible doctrine, when you have truth, that the truth will divide itself away from error. That's the whole purpose of it. We talked about the great verse in 2 Timothy 2.15 where it says, uh, study to show thyself approved, a workman unto God, which needeth not be ashamed. And then it says, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the sole purpose of doctrine. The sole purpose of doctrine in the Bible is to give you a specific teaching that is God's concept of what he wants us to know as truth. And then when you take that and you put it into your life and you use it in everything else in your life, that doctrine will separate you from the error that's out there. And certainly there's a lot of error out there. We saw the defining passage in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29. And, uh, and now we see that the Bible doctrine formed for us in that passage. It talked about Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees and how that the people were astonished at his doctrine. They couldn't believe the things that he was teaching them because they'd been in a situation for a long time that they were getting nothing but stale stuff. Nothing was... Nothing was really uh, powered by God in all that they were getting. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
they had entered into a kind of like a, um, a, a false teaching mode that, that they were keeping them completely away from the truth of God. And nothing, nothing is more refreshing to a thirsty soul than the truth of the Word of God. And when they heard Jesus talk about the things that were in the Bible that the scribes and the Pharisees weren't talking about anymore, the Bible says they were astonished at his doctrine. And it goes on to say because he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees who who had no authority. So by that passage, we get defined for us that doctrine in the Bible sets up what we call our final authority the Word of God, and we believe that to be the Bible that we hold. Uh, I don't know why people have a tough time with that. When you stop and think about it, every issue that man faces comes down to that simple format of authority. Who's going to run what? All through history, you look at history, you know, and history appears to be very complicated. And when you put all the details in it, you know, uh, it, and you get looking at the history of Europe and, and all the conflicts and the history of the Middle East and all the things that you, you look at and you go back and you study the Crusades and you study the 30 years war and the 100 years war and the War of the Roses and, and uh, you, you, you look at the French Revolution, you know, and our own American Revolution You look at the French and Indian War before the American Revolution, the Civil War, our Spanish-American War. You look at World War I, World War II, Korea and Vietnam, and right up into uh, the Middle East War we have today. When you put them all together, folks, the reason for them is very simple. It comes down to one little thing. At the end of the day, when push comes to shove, who's going to run it? That's authority. Who's going to have the final say? And, of course, that's, that's the problem all through it. You, when, you, when you start to work with people, you see it in families. The number one problem that families have is that there's, there's no authority in the family. And many times the father will not take the responsibility of being the spiritual leader and taking the final authority of the Word of God and putting it into his family. And when that does not happen, then, you know, we see the problem that, that we get into. And uh, it's a thing where the, many times the, the wife becomes the final authority. And we all have seen examples and know how that works. It doesn't work at all. And, you know, you see it in, in Christians' lives. Uh, when they get to a point in their life that they want to live a certain way, they'll come to church, they'll start to get discipled, they'll start to hear biblical doctrine. And then at some point in their life, they, they're faced with some things that they've got to change in their life maybe some relationships, maybe some things that they're doing. Now they're up against an authority, you see, and they've got to accept that authority as the final authority in their life. Some do, some don't. It's just that simple. Uh, Many of you, when you raise teenagers and you get to that teenage years, uh, the aspect of teenage rebellion is nothing more than a teenage boy or a girl rebelling against the established authority of the parents. That's, That's the way it works. And every issue in life, I don't care where it is, it will be about authority. The Bible, the whole concept of the Bible is over authority. There's two kingdoms in the Bible, kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. At the end of the day, in its basic form, it all comes down to who's going to run those kingdoms, one or the other, God or the devil. It's about authority. Authority is something that you can never get away from in your life. 
Authority is something that is in every aspect of history, every aspect of churches, every aspect of our lives. No matter of fact, when we're in grade school, there's an authority over you. When you're in high school, there's an authority over you. When you go to work someplace after you get out of school, there's an authority over you. Authority is always going to be something that's in our life, and it is the issue that we have to face. Now, let me just say this. You can have more than one authority in your life, but you can only have one final authority in your life. I mean, you can have many authorities in your life, but when it comes down to it at the end of the day, for us here anyhow, and I can't speak for anybody else, our final authority for what we do is the Word of God. That's what we believe. And the ability when you get God's wisdom and understanding to see and understand and to use the Bible as your final authority. To rightly divide, as I said, truth from error. We've talked about it many, many times. Life is choices. And we make good choices in life and we make bad choices in life. We make choices in life that, that will ruin and wreck our lives. We make choices in life that will help us and give us a great life. It's just simple as that. On making those choices, it comes down by what authority you make those choices. When you are your own authority in your life, then you make choices based on that, and that's usually going to wind up in a bad scenario. When the Bible becomes the final authority of your life, then you make choices based on Bible doctrine which separates truth from error and gives you the right choices to make. Now, I want to read, uh, I want to read uh, 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 chapter 4 again of Proverbs and uh, just to get familiar where we were last week, and then we'll move through it here. And I want to talk about the second installment of what we talked about last week, or began to talk about last week. It says, Hear ye children uh, the instructions of a father, and attend to no understanding. Now here's the verse that we started with last week. For I give you good doctrine. We've been on a pursuit coming through Proverbs of, of seeing how you get God's wisdom and God's understanding. Now we know it's been defined for us that the way that you do that is to get good doctrine. Now we know that that doctrine is found in the Word of God in the specific teachings that God wants to give us about every situation in life. For I was my father's son, tender, and the only beloved in my sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. Thank you today for those that have come out. We pray for all those that are sick or traveling, and we just pray that you'll give them a journey of mercies, and, and we just love you, Lord, and thank you for our church and for the great people that are in it and for the Word of God that you've given us. Help us today to leave here uh, filled up and uh, help us to come to the point where we really uh, grow and, and learn to love you more every day. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, let me, let me preface my remarks today that I'm going to make. This will be somewhat, and I don't mean this in a, in a wrong way, uh, but I'm not going to preach to you today in the, in the sense of, of normally preaching. This is, but you've got to understand this. We talked about it last week, and we kind of laid a good foundation. Now I want to get you to the next level, so to speak, because you have got to understand this. I said it last week. There are messages that, that you need to hear in life, and there are messages that you better hear in life, and this is one of them. 
Now, and this will be somewhat of a history lesson today, and, and yet uh, I think it's absolutely vital. I will definitely try not to be boring as the guys that I read, some 200 of them probably over the years, to, to amass the material and in the Word of God that I've, I, I have come to my own conclusions based on what the Bible says. Uh, but, I, but in its end, I, it was all worth it. I want to show you today your doctrinal roots. We now know that doctrine is vital. There's no question about that. Last week's message served that, served that purpose. And we also know that our job is to take a stand. We also know there'll be a price to pay by taking that stand. We know that now. We want to talk today about our doctrinal roots. We want to understand leaving today why we are who we are as Bible-believing Christians. Now, to fully understand the importance or the impact of doctrine, I think it's absolutely important to us for me to take last week's message as we talked about it and then put it into a better context today that, and next week too that we get a whole concept of what we want to understand about Bible doctrine. Now, years ago, years ago, when American churches started to fall apart, and this would be around uh, the turn of the 1900s. American churches, and let me, let me qualify this. I'm going to talk about Baptist churches because Baptist churches, we, that's what we are. And I you know we'll talk about some other situations, but my focus today is on our roots. I want you to leave to here today understanding our doctrinal roots, what happened, how it got messed up, and why we are who we are and why we stand on what we stand today. But years ago, Years ago, when, when churches began to uh, fall apart and began to uh, move away from the Bible, there was a group that, that broke out from that. This will be back in the 1920s and the 1930s. Back around the 1900s, the Southern Baptist Convention was the largest contingency of Baptists uh, in the world. There were only three basic groups back then. There was a Southern Baptist, which was the biggest. There was the GRB GRB, uh, which was the next largest, and then there was the American Baptist, that was the smaller group. That's all you had in America. And the Southern Baptist Convention began to go into apostasy. By 1920 and 1930s, their chief of uh, a Bible college, which was down in uh, 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 I forget where it's at, down Baylor, I think it is, down there, they were actually teaching evolution in the Bible colleges. They were teaching their young seminary students that the stories in the Bible were not true. That Adam and Eve was a fable. That Noah's Ark and the flood was a fable. They actually, Louisville is where it's at, Louisville. They were actually teaching through all of their seminaries that the Bible was a book that could not be trusted. They turned out four or five generations of preachers who absolutely believed nothing about the Bible. Now, when that was all going on back in the 20s, there was one young man who, who took a stand. And that young man's name was J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris had grew up in the Southern Baptist Contention. He was their fair-haired boy. He was a great preacher. But he would not, he would not put up with all the apostasy that was going on and where the Southern Baptist Convention was headed. And around 1920, 25, somewhere in there, he left, he split, and went from the Southern Baptist Convention. And he took a group of people with him, a large contingency. 
but they were men and women who wanted to stay with the truth of the Bible. They were as sick of what was going on in the Southern Baptist Convention as, as, uh, as he was. And immediately they began to, uh, began to uh, hold to the truths of the Bible. And they gave to Christianity a brand new term that had never been heard before. And because they had left the Southern Baptist Convention and wanted to stay with the absolute truths of the Bible, the fundamentals, they were called fundamentalists. Now, you hear that term a lot today. Most people don't know where it even comes from. In 1900, there were no fundamentalists around. The fundamentalist movement starts in the 1920s or 30s when J. Frank Norris is coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and, uh, and, and because it's a mess. The American Baptists were already a mess. There's an American Baptist church down in Florida that you could go to in Sarasota, Florida, where you walk into the lobby, there's a statue of Jesus Christ, there's a statue of Buddha, and there's a statue of, of somebody else, and you could take your pick who you want to worship. They were already shot. But the Southern Baptist Convention went into apostasy. J. Frank Norris came out, and he, he, he said, we're going to stay with the fundamental truths of the Bible. Now, sometimes today, you hear them called conservatives. Okay? Sometimes today, you hear them called traditionalists. Sometimes they're called independents. And the word independent means that uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, they're part of a co-op program. All your offerings, everything that you do goes into the co-op. A Southern Baptist preacher doesn't have the right to get up and preach whatever he wants to preach to his church. Louisville sends him the messages, and they all have to preach the same message. Um, it's changed a little bit, but that's the way it was. The Sunday school teachers, they all get their curriculum from Louisville. And, of course, Louisville's a mess. And, and that's what J. Frank Norris, he wanted nothing to do with. And so they broke out of that, and so today they're called independent Baptists. Independent meaning they're independent of anybody telling them what they have to preach. See where this comes from? These are things you have to know. These are things that in time, if you're going to do anything with what you have in Christ, you have to know these things. And uh, this is why when you go uh, down the road and you'll see these big modern churches today, a lot of Southern Baptist churches, a lot of evangelical churches, you'll see on their marquees that they'll have several different types of service. See? They'll have a contemporary service. That'll be at 9 o'clock. They'll have a, a modern service. That'll be at 10 o'clock. And then around 11, they'll have a traditional service. You ever, how many have seen that? You see it all the time. You know what that means? That means that they're trying to give a service that'll make everybody happy. The traditional service will be for the older folks in the church who don't like the contemporary stuff. It's more worldly to them. They want the old style stuff that they're used to. So to please everybody and to make everybody happy, They'll have two or three services that meet, as they think, everybody's needs. For the modern young crowd like you, to the hip-hop crowd, they'll have the, they'll have the modern one. They'll have, the, they'll have this one over here. And then for you us old fogies who are sticking the muds and won't change, they'll have the traditional service. That's how it works. These are things you need to know. I'm not, and I'm not criticizing anything I say today, and I'm going to say some things today. But I'm not criticizing anybody. I don't care. None of my business. But I think you need to know why things are the way they are. I want you to know why this church is the way that it is. 
We've got some, we've got some uh, uh, older folks in our church who go back and their roots are into, 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 into fundamentalism all the way back to J. Frank North. Were, were you guys related to Wendell Zimmerman in any way, shape, or form? Did, did one of your kids marry one of his kids? Yeah, and Wendell Zimmerman was one of J. Frank Norris's boys, see? And uh, it was a thing where we've got people here who, who know exactly what I'm talking about is the truth. And some of you younger kids, you know, you, 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 you haven't been around that long. And, but I want you to know why things are the way they are. I want you to understand it. I want you to see it. Now, as noble a cause as that was, when J. Frank Norris did what he, uh, he tried to do. It never made it past 40 years or so without it going into apostasy. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I'm a very lucky guy. I count myself, and I've told you this before, I count myself as, as absolutely one of the most fortunate people on the planet. Because I actually, I was born in 1950. And I actually, I actually saw the end of the fundamentalist movement. I actually saw the end of it and the beginning of this modern movement that we have today. Uh, I, 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 I actually lived through the end of fundamentalism and into the age of the modern and here's the new word today, the progressive church scene. The last the new word, progressiveness. Progressiveness means we're progressing. That's what it means. Now, in politics, Obama, Joe Biden, this is not criticism, Obama, Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi, they're all, they're all progressiveness. The progressive movement started in politics back with Woodrow Wilson in 1917 and 1918. And it's a movement that progressively the, the country goes uh, and progresses and becomes more modern and accepts new things as they come on the horizon. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in churches, in churches, it, it's churches progressing uh, to a worldly standard and a worldly concept. I actually saw and heard the preachers of the last, of the, what was called the old guard. I actually heard Bob Jones Sr. preach. I actually watched R.G. Lee preach the Word of God several times. Victor Sears, Howard Sears, B.R. Lakin. These are men that most people today have no idea who they are. They were the last of the old guard. They were the men who held true to those Bible, that Bible. They loved the Word of God. They were never part of the modern movement. They disdained it with everything because they knew what it was. They stayed faithful to the preaching of the Word of God all the days of their lives. Oliver Green was a great radio preacher. Many of you know him. Uh, uh, J. Vernon McGee was another one. And from time to time, you can still find their things on Christian radio, but not too often anymore. But as they died off, the tide began to turn. I told you last week that bad doctrine is likened to leaven. And as they died off, the leaven began to come in. And as I gave you last week, a little leaven leavened the whole lump. At about 20 years' time, Bible-believing Christianity had turned from the Bible. 
As the Ephesians, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 says about the church at Ephesus, they had left their first love and they turned into an apostate church. They dumped the Bible completely. They went to the progressive movement. I'm going to show you how it happened. And because today I want to show you what happened. But I first want to set the scene so you can understand uh, in a better way the death of biblical doctrine. Now, let me start with this. Now, these are going to be a series. I'm not preaching. I'm not preaching today. If, if you're here and you're connected with any of this one way or the other, I'm not preaching about it. Yeah, I don't care. None of my business. I'm not up here on some soapbox ranting and raving like some preachers do. I'm just giving you information. I'm giving you truth about Bible doctrine. I want my church, you, to understand. Now, maybe you're here and you don't want to understand. That's okay. Just endure it. Uh, we have some, underneath the seat in front of you, there's some wooden sticks. They use them all the time. Put them into your mouth and bite down on them like when they used to operate without anesthetic, and you'll get through the service. Okay, but I'm telling you. Now, in case you don't know this today, we're a cult. We're a cult. We're a cult because we believe the Bible is still the Word of God. Now, can you believe that? I mean, I mean, that is progressive for you, see? Because progressiveness in churches is nothing more than what evolution is in the secular world. The world evolves, churches evolve. You evolve, theology evolves. No, it doesn't. You know, we're a cult because we still believe that this Bible is the absolute Word of God. And yet, in 1900, 1850, 1860, everybody on the planet that was a Christian believed exactly what we believe today. You know how we got from there to here? Through progressiveness. They're getting rid of Bible doctrine. Clarence Larkin. You can buy his book. It was written back there in about... Oh, I don't know, 1902. Well, I showed you the book that John found about the manuscript evidence. It was written around uh, the same period of time. Uh, Arthur Pink, one of the greatest Bible expositors in a practical way that you'll find. C.I. Schofield. Many of people used to carry a Schofield reference Bible all their lives. That's all they knew. He believed the Bible was the Word of God. Dwight Pentecost, another great Bible teacher. Uh, 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 Sir Robert Dick Wilson, he wrote a book on the coming prince back in the end of the 1800s. The coming prince is a book about the Antichrist written around 1880, 1890. Nothing in print has ever surpassed his work on that coming of the Antichrist. You know what he believed? He believed exactly what I believe. You see, back then, everybody believed what we did. But because we have stayed true to that and everybody else has gotten progressive, see how it goes? Now, let me ask you some questions here. Who would have, 30, 40 years ago, who would have ever imagined that in America that there'd be a time when a man would join himself to another man in holy matrimony? I'm not preaching. This is not my preaching face. My preaching face is red, veins popping out, front row wearing raincoats to keep the spit from getting on them. I'm not preaching. I'm asking you a question. Who would have thought or ever imagined in America 
a time when a man would join himself in marriage to another man or a woman to another woman. There's a lot of things that I, I'm really confused about. I don't know how we can have that and say it's okay when the laws on our books of our civil government, you hear it all the time, somebody gets arrested for sodomy. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. The impact of the Bible even impacted the laws that we did. And yet state after state right now are debating the idea of same-sex marriage that a man marrying a man is a natural process and should be accepted. They're even bringing it on a level that if you don't accept gays and homosexuals that it's a discrimination like it was in the civil rights movement which was definitely discrimination. But now they're trying to put a man with a man and a woman with a woman in the same context that that's, that's some kind of discrimination because it should be accepted. I know God has a sense of humor. I know that because every morning I look in the mirror. But you know what I just love? I love the fact that Russia, a godless country, Iran, a godless country, an atheistic countries who hate the Bible, hate Christians, but they take a stand and they know that homosexuality is wrong. And America, who's supposed to be the Christian nation, thinks it's okay. Now, I'm not preaching. Do I look like I'm preaching? No. I'm not preaching. Anybody wet in the front row? No. I'm asking you questions. I, I, these are questions I'm asking you. I'm asking myself. But see, 30, 40, 50 years ago, the Bible doctrine was still very clear on the issue. There was no issue about it. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 20. I'm not preaching. But Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says, women changing the natural use of their body. It says, men also leaving the natural use of the woman, burned with their lust toward each other. Men with men, working that which is unseemly. Now, I know everybody says you interpret the Bible any way you want. How many ways is to interpret that? <laughs> I'm confused. Do I look confused? I am confused. In the Old Testament, go sometime to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Not right now, but write it down. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 23 sometime and, and read the whole chapter and see what happened when the Sodomites came into the land and were accepted as a natural lifestyle with the nation of Israel. Just do it. Just do it. Now, I, I don't like to use this word, and I'm not, but the word faggot. We don't hear it much today, but the word faggot was a term that was used. And I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody. I'm trying to educate you. I mean, if you can sit through a sex education class and they say graphic and you say, oh, that's wonderful, then you're going to love this. <laughs> the word faggot. That's a French word. It's not some gutter word that was found that somebody just made up. That's a French word. And it meant sticks that were bundled together that were burnt into a fire. Somebody, I don't know who it was, certainly wasn't me, don't, what are you looking at me this way for? I'm not preaching. <laughs> Somebody 
understood enough that saw those sticks being bundled up and being burned in a fire, equated it to somebody that was living an unseemly lifestyle that being bundled up and burned in the fires of hell. Somebody figured it out. Wasn't me. Now, I don't use the word. But I know where it started. How do you get past Genesis 18 or 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah? And yet I'll tell you how they get by. They say that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to back then because of a lack of hospitality. I'm confused. But that's not the worst part. I mean, that's bad enough. But the worst part is not even our, is our, our, is our government going that way, but the worst part is Christianity is going that way. The Episcopalian church, the Methodist church, the Lutheran, I'm not preaching. I'm telling you the truth. I want you to understand where this all comes from, the Presbyterians. They accept gay and lesbian pastors. They perform gay and lesbian marriages. They accept it as a normal lifestyle. They'll go over there in one of the greatest passages in the Bible about David and Jonathan. And David and Jonathan is the greatest, one of the greatest stories in the Bible showing you how what kind of relationships you should have with Christ. Jonathan as you, David as Christ. And he'll make that as David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship and then justify theirs. In spite of Romans chapter 1. I'm just asking. I'm just asking. Now, the answer why, and I know the answer why, the answer why is simple. No Bible doctrine anymore. It's dead. Nobody has the truth. And now it gets into our churches, and because there's no doctrine, nobody follows the Bible as truth anymore. Nothing divides anything out that's wrong from what's right. So there's no right or wrong anymore. It's just everybody gets together. Now, I got another question. In the 1920s, was a man by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday, single-handedly, by the preaching of a King James 1611 authorized version, brought about prohibition. <coughs> prohibition was no alcohol in the United States of America. It went into effect under the 18th Amendment in 1920 and stayed in until 1933 when FDR took it out. Now, one man had the courage to stand and had a final authority to stand on, and he preached, and he changed a whole nation through the power of his preaching. And boy, did he pay a price. How many saw a couple of weeks ago on TV, it was on about 10, 30, 11 o'clock, the movie Elmer Gantry. John saw it. I watch it every time it comes on. Most people look at it and they say, Elmer Gantry or Burt Lancaster. Man, that's, that's not hip-hop, brother. I'm not into that. I'm into, I'm into the modernity. I'm into Justin Beebe or whatever his name is, you know. <laughs> Justin Baby is what it should be. But anyway, Elmer Gantry, that's a movie about a, about a female evangelist and a crooked male evangelist who preach against liquor when all the time they're in sin and immorality themselves. And it was made by a drunk by the name of Sinclair Lewis who made it specifically to counter what Billy Sunday was doing. So the next time you get a chance to watch it, you got to watch it. I'm giving you, I'm giving you, I'm broadening your horizons here. Boy, he paid a price for it. Now, back then, the Bible believers 
they, they knew their Bible. They, they didn't believe for a moment that Jesus drank fermented wine. They didn't believe in John 10 that when he changed the water to wine that was fermented hooch. They understood the doctrine of Deuteronomy chapter 32 of the two types of wine in the Bible. They understood that. There was no, no confusion on it back then. There's a lot of confusion on it now, but there wasn't back then. But now that's all changed. What happened? There's churches in this city where the pastor stands in the pulpit and says social drinking is okay. He equates it to social drinking no different than playing video games. And the whole congregation says amen. And there's these churches, they, they hold Bible study around wine tasting parties. The pastor will post his picture on his favorite Facebook or MySpace or In Your Face or whatever it is of his favorite wine that he likes to drink and have little discussions about it. They have beer-making clubs in churches now, in case you didn't know that. Now, here's my question. I don't care. It's none of my business, and I'm certainly not preaching. But did I miss something? Was Billy Sunday wrong? Is the Bible wrong in what it teaches? I mean, did the thousands and thousands and thousands of sermons and messages preached at the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago to get the drunks and derelicts straightened out? Did the thousands and hundreds of messages at the Azula Street Mission in Los Angeles to get the drunks off the street? The city union mission in our own city uh, here, uh, were they wrong? Was the Brown Street Mission, where I came from in Canton, Ohio, were they wrong? Were all those messages in vain? What happened? How did it change that it was once wrong and we preached against it? Now we don't preach on it anymore and we accept it. I'm confused. See, the problem you're faced with as a Christian today, the problem you're faced like I gave you last week when there's no king in Israel, no authority, no final authority, and every man just does what he wants to do, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. That's exactly where we're at. Now, let me ask you another question. I can't tell you the millions of lives that have been destroyed by gambling. For years in this country, it was illegal. Why? Because of the devastating damage it causes in families, people's lives of getting addicted to it. Then the state gets into money trouble, and around 1975, they come up with an idea called a lottery. I'm not fighting it. Got my lottery ticket in my back pocket. <laughs> and they make millions of money, dollars, millions of dollars off of tickets and taxes. Then that wasn't enough, so they got the idea of putting in riverboat gambling. And they vote on that. They have to put them on a river down there. Kansas City's got a couple of them. Kansas County's got some of them. Uh, and the federal government legalizes gambling to make revenue, saying that all the money that comes in is going to go to schools and going to go to, uh, going to, go to uh, fix the roads. Now, see, there it is. There's the philosophy that the end justifies the means. I'm not fighting it. I'm not preaching anything. I'm asking a question here. But here's the bottom line. I, I, I just, I, I, it just, I don't get it. They say, Bob Jones Sr., I said it last week, said it was never right to do wrong to get the chance to do right. You see the same thing with Obamacare, same philosophy, and I'm not fighting it. 
He gets on the thing and he says, four million people who never had health care just signed up. On the other side, eight million people who had it lost it. See how it works? I ain't fighting it. I'm just confused this morning. I'm asking questions. I am. Now, for years, we griped and complained and made fun of the Roman Catholic Church and its bingo parties. We all did. But now today, there's churches in this city that have gambling ministries. At one time, they set up 200 tables for a Bible study. Now, they set up poker tables. And they, they focus their ministry after celebrity poker on TV. I'm not fighting it. I don't know how to play poker. I just lose everything I got, so I just stay away from it. Monopolies as far as I'll go. They have little gambling parties in their home, poker practice parties. And, of course, uh, they have their beer there, too. Of course, when you win, you have to donate your winnings to your favorite ministry in the church. Now, that's no different than what the Catholics did that we complained about for so many years. I, I, I don't get it. And, and I, I'm not fighting it. It's none of my business. I'm not. I'm asking a question. I don't really care, but what happened? How come the world used to do it and churches used to preach against it and now nobody preaches anymore and a church does today exactly what the world did 30 years ago? That's my question. Will anybody explain that to me? And yet I know the answer. The answer is the death of biblical doctrine. It used to be that the, a mother's womb was the safest place for a baby. Not anymore. There was a time when the world, the world, the world come up with the idea of, of getting an abortion. And I'll tell you right now, that doesn't stay with the world because Christians do the exact same thing. The idea that we can sin and then have a baby and then so we can get out from under our sin, have an abortion, get rid of it so we can set what? Go out and sin some more. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Well, we, we see it in our own country. In 1952, Harry Truman established a National Day of Prayer every year. In 1984, Ronald Reagan uh, set the day as the first Thursday in May as the National Day of Prayer. In June 2007, presidential candidate Hussein Barack Obama decided that America was no longer and declared that America was no longer a Christian nation. In 2008, he canceled the 21st Annual National Day of Prayer at the White House. The reason that he gave, here it comes, he didn't want to offend anybody. But that next year in 2009, September 25th, from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., he held a national day of prayer for Muslims at the White House, and 50,000 showed up, and he attended himself and took his shoes off so he wouldn't offend anybody. Now, what's going on here? Now, can anybody tell me how we got from the place where the founding fathers and Thomas Jefferson was the author of the Declaration of Independence? When the founding fathers gave him that job and he brought it back, one of the founding fathers said, looked at it and he says, this will never work. You only got one reference to God in here. We as a nation can never forget what God has done for us. So go back, rethink it, rewrite it, and bring it back. And when Thomas Jefferson brought it back, 
he brought it back and added a total of four places where they recognized God in the four basic fundamental concepts that you and I believe as Bible believers. Now, why is it that your kids can't read the Bible or pray in school? Yeah, we just heard last year that our military men can no longer proselyte people and win them to Christ without severe penalties and teach the Bible. Why is it that your kids, my kids, and our soldiers can't do that, but we give every Muslim a Koran and a prayer rug when they hit Guantanamo Bay? See how confusing it gets? Now, I'm going to show you the four things the devil did. I'm going to show you the four things that the devil did. I want you to understand as my church what happened when the Philadelphian church age shut down and Sears and Pennies and Kmart opened up. I want you to get it and see how this thing works. Now, the first thing, obviously, was the rejection of the Word of God. The devil had to get rid of the Bible. And the dumping of the King James Bible took place in 1888 in Sarasota, Florida, when the Southern Baptist Convention officially dropped the King James Bible and adopted the brand new RSV that came out. That was the beginning. It had been accepted by all the scholars, but the devil had to get rid of the Bible. And that was the beginning of a bunch of authorities that came out that did away with the final authority. He had to take away a final authority. He had to replace it with 500 authorities, but they're all different. And they're off a Greek New Testament that is corrupt and took in all the doctrine out. We don't have time to get into it today. Let me show you what he did. Look over at Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. A great little thing, nugget hidden here in the Bible. Matthew chapter 13 in the parables. Here's what he did. I love, I love the Bible because it's so relevant to history. And you can't look at any place in history and not see the relevance of how it works. Now watch this. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. Another parable spake he unto them. Here it comes. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Now look at that. Now we already know 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Jesus warned us in Matthew 16, 6, Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. See, leaven is bad doctrine. We know that now. False doctrine. And look at this, a woman. My, my, my. I wonder who that woman is. Well, if you've been hanging out with us in Proverbs for very long, we talked about her in Proverbs chapter 2. We're going to talk her about her again in chapter 5, and she'll show up at our doorstep again in chapter 7. She's false religion. She's false teacher. She's false religion. She's the woman represented by the Babylon mystery religion, the mother of harlots in the book of Revelation 17 and 18. Now look there, meal. Meal was made from wheat. In your Bible, wheat are a type of people. Now I want you to notice that the parable says that this woman took leaven, bad doctrine, and hid it into three, three measures of meal. Now what you have there is a picture of the church history coming up to the second coming of Christ and what the devil did by taking leaven, bad doctrine, through a woman, false religion, and hiding it in three measures of meal, and in the process, the whole lump was ruined. 
And if you go back in history, you'll find that there's three major groups that match up to these three measures of meal that got destroyed. The Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and the Protestant churches that come out of the Reformation. There's your three groups, all destroyed. Because Galatians 5, 9 says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. It's just that, it's just that, just that clear. Now, Getting that out of the way, we've talked about that many, many times. Let me show you about the second thing that, that the devil brought in. This is called neo-orthodoxy. We've talked about it a few times, but never in the length that we're going to look at it now. Neo means new. <coughs> orthodoxy is the word that means standard of truth. When we talk about the orthodox Jews, we're talking about the Jews that stay true to the Old Testament. So now we're looking at a new word, Neo-orthodoxy, meaning a new orthodoxy. This has its roots back in 1880 and 1900 to the religious libertarians or the Protestant modernists. Its mission statement is simple. Here's what they believe. Change the Bible and churches and its message to keep up with society and adjust your church's teaching in a progressive sort of way. As the world goes, you adapt your teaching to it to be able to reach people. This is why they're the ones who brought up the idea of women pastors. It's evolution in your theology. This is why they'll accept homosexual and lesbians as a legitimate lifestyle. They'll allow them to be pastors. They'll allow them to be deacons. It's a mixture of Freudian psychology and watered-down Bible to get all the differences out. There's no doctrine. It's not about doctrine. It's about looking at the world, and we're a church. We want to reach people. So in a milder form, what we would do is we would say, let's have a gambling ministry. We go as far as volleyball. We're safe there. <clears throat> but you see, when you're progressive, you realize that this is where the people are. They're in the bar. So you want to get the people out of the bars and get them into the church? Serve them the same thing in your church that they're serving in the bars. You see, when you get away the difference, what you've got is what's in the bars is no good, and what you have in the book is what exactly what they need. But you're progressive now. So you bring them in. You bring the booze in. You bring the gambling in. Uh, the Uni Unity Universal Church, based in East Lansing Mission in 1991, this was reported into, in, uh, in the uh, Zodiac News Service, they showed pornographic movies in their church to people, invited all their people in, and the money they raised went to feed the poor. Now, you want to pack out a church service? That's a way to do it. But the end justifies the means. No hard preaching on sin. In fact, there's no real sin anymore. No preaching on hell. No preaching on the judgment seat of Christ. No preaching on God's judgment. Nobody's negative. Negative goes out the door. Everybody's positive. You're positive, well, I'm, 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 I'm a serial killer. Oh, that's a positive thing. I'm happy for you. Boy, I'll tell you what. I understand your problem. You're a serial killer. You grew up in your home, and you never got, all you had was oatmeal. never got any cereal when you were a kid because your family was poor, so you grew up to be a serial killer. I know how that works. I do the same thing. Well, I'll be, we'll accept you. Everybody's fine. Well, I'm a homosexual. I'm a lesbian. We're all God's children. No, you're not. You see, the Bible doctrine that we hold to and other churches hold to it separates out us. There'll never be a gray area of what's wrong and what's right when you have Bible doctrine. That's the key. Neo-Orthodoxy says get rid of the Bible doctrine and bring everything up. 
bring everybody together, get rid of all the differences, and let the church become progressive. Let it become, uh, let it move with the world. Wherever the world goes, make sure the church is there. And this is exactly the, what they did. And they destroyed Bible doctrine. The third thing was another new system that came in around the turn of the century. It's called neo-evangelicalism. And this is called new evangelism. I don't know what was wrong with the old one, but they wanted a new one. Now, simply, it's a movement that starts around 1860 and moves up to the 1900s and on in. And this is what, all this is what destroyed the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, they, they, they bring Christianity back into an accredited form of thought. Let me translate that for you. They take the Bible out of your hands as a common man, me, and put it back where it belongs with scholarship. And then they tell us what it believes. So when you ask somebody and teach a Bible study, you'll hear them say it all the time. Well, uh, in, in, in the Greek, it doesn't say that. You'll go to Bible college and one Greek professor will tell you this, another Greek professor will tell you this. And uh, when you say, well, you guys, it doesn't, how do I know exactly uh, that that is right, is, that's what it means? You know what it'll tell you? Because I just told you, he becomes your final authority. You don't need anything to understand this book. This book was written in a fourth grade language in English, the King's English. It was put out in a time when the English language was as perfect as it could ever get. It's, it's inspired by God, preserved by God, given down to you, and you don't need anything, but somebody wants to take this out of your hand. You know why? Because the most powerful thing in the world is a common man with a common Bible. And when neo-evangelicalism came in, they wanted to take that from you, and it was a reconstruction of Bible theology. Doctrine, which was the, which was the uh, uh, counter to the Philadelphian church age to bring in the Laodicean church of 1900. A shift from hard Bible preaching on doctrine or issues and dividing people on truth to a mindset that we're going to teach now. And we go to the fact that salvation is the most important thing. Don't let somebody not get saved just because of the fact that, that, they, that they, may not, they may be messed up on a doctrine over here or not understand this doctrine. Salvation is number one. No, salvation is not number one in the Bible. Truth is number one in the Bible. And he says the number one thing in 2 Timothy 2.15 that the Bible was profitable for was not salvation. The first thing was doctrine. If your doctrine's messed up, everything else is going to be messed up. I'll tell you the greatest example. I'm not preaching. This is not a criticism. I like the guy. But the greatest example of that in our modern day is Billy Graham. John Busquets got a tape back there of Billy Graham preaching back in the the early, late 40s, 50s. And he's tearing the paint off. I've heard him preach and seen videos of him preaching back in the early, uh, early, early 50s. And I mean, he's sweating. I mean, he is, his hair's all just, he's, he's all over the place. And he is preaching the hell out of them. He is painting sin as black as it can be. And you know what? He started out as a Baptist. He ain't a Baptist anymore. But he started out as a Baptist. We have a lot of books back there by Pete Ruckman. Him and Pete Ruckman were buddies. He wanted Pete Ruckman to go with him and get into an evangelist concept because Ruckman was an evangelist. But Ruckman wasn't going to do it because Ruckman saw the way it was going and he went his way and Billy Graham went his way. And he did great in the the 50s and up through maybe even the early 60s. But then some money bag people got into the thing and they said, Billy, you know what? You're a great preacher. 
you got a great message. You just need somebody to get behind you and really put this thing together. And he fell for it. And he said, wow. You see, God's Holy Spirit getting him the places to preach wasn't good enough. Money talks, brother. And now he comes to the place where they're going to rent out ball arenas. They're going to rent out stadiums. They're going to rent out this. Billy, 200,000 people will come. And then somebody said to him, but Billy, we're going to get behind you. We're going to do all this. But you've got to tone down your preaching. You look like a madman up there. Nobody's going to come to hear somebody like that. You say too many things that offend people. You preach things that don't, that don't and that was, that was in the 60s and the 70s. It was 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Now Billy Graham's not sure there's a hell anymore. He thinks the Muhammad was a great Christian. He wrote that Pope John II was the greatest Christian in the 20th century. See, he quit being a Baptist, and now he's progressive. That's how it goes. It's exactly how it goes. And uh, it's a thing where it's, it's, it, it's just the way it works. Now, this is where Baptist churches have gone today for the most part. They're, they're neo-evangelical neo movement. Some of them keep the name Baptist. Most of them take the name off. And, you know, you'll find that they'll switch now, and now they're called Christian churches, community churches, Bible churches, uh, church chap, Christ chapel, family centers, uh, everything but any, anything to knock. And I'm not saying some of them aren't good, but I'm saying they want to move away from anything that has any kind of doctrine that will divide. Because the goal today is to reach everybody by getting everybody together. The Bible's goal is to separate everybody and then take the ones who want to do what's right. I mean, I asked you last week, when did Jesus ever cut, tone down, change his message, water it down so he could reach anybody? The term, my way or the highway, started in the Gospels. He said, narrow is the way and straight is the gate. And that's just the way it works. These two main groups have uh, been the main issues that destroy doctrine. And it took Baptist churches that were good, strong churches off the grid uh, as far as uh, having any power. Uh, they took the Bible away. They had no truth. They brought in neo-orthodoxy, and they, they, they married themselves to the world. And then, of course, they got into neo-evangelicalism, and they took the doctrine out. And now Christian, Christianity is just like the nation of Israel in 606p before they went into captivity. They're a mess. And all Baptist churches today, for the most part, other than the exceptions of some that hang true with the Bible, some of them dump the name, some of them keep the name, but they all follow into this. It is taught in every circle to pastors. The way that you reach people is to start preaching hard and start teaching and reaching out and accepting everybody. It's, it absolutely is what they do today. And I don't know how to tell you. Now, the last one, put the icing on the cake. We've looked at three of them so far, three things. The last one, put the icing on the cake. And I don't, this is the beauty of Thursday night Bible study and Sunday, how God puts them all together because we really talked about this Thursday night when somebody asked a question. And this one is the charismatic movement. Now, the word charismatic is a Greek word. And it means gifted. It means that whoever is holds to this teaching is gifted more than, than you or me. 
And uh, let me say this. I understand that uh, you can be neo-Orthodox or neo-evangelical and still be looked at as something fairly legitimate. I don't mean this in the wrong way. I really don't. And don't take this in the wrong way. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, I'll be glad to sit down with you or you can, whatever you want to do. I don't know where you're at today with everything, but I'm telling you, you have to really work it hard at having some kind of credibility to be a charismatic today. I mean, you really do. I mean, you do. If there ever was a group who had no credibility, whatever, it's the charismatic movement. And I know when you start talking like that, people get mad. I understand. I understand. But I'm not preaching. If I was preaching it, then you can get mad. I'm not preaching. I'm just telling you the truth. I mean, when you claim to be a charismatic, you just have announced to the world that, that you don't understand some basic things. I've dealt with charismatics. I have right now charismatics who are my good friends. We just don't talk about the Bible. We did at one time, but it's a dead-end street. But they all have four characteristics. I've never met one who didn't have these. One, a total disregard for the Bible as their final authority. Now, I teach you guys a three-little-word thing around here that's very doctrinal and very, very practical. It's simply called faith, fact, and feeling. I have faith. My faith is in facts, the Word of God, my final authority. When my faith is in the facts of the Word of God, it produces the right feeling. You see, my emotions, my feelings are based on what the book says, not what I want to feel. There's people in my life that I may have a tendency not to like. But the facts tell me I have to love them, so I have to adjust my attitude. There's things that I want to do in life that I'd like to do. The book says you can't do that as a Christian. So you know what? I adjust my appetite to the book. You see, my faith is based on the facts, and the facts produce what I feel. But a charismatic, along with a lot of other people, they have faith, but they don't have any facts. So what do they operate on? Their feelings. And that's the thing. They don't have a final authority. We went through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 Thursday night in a way that if you didn't get it, you're stupid in a stump. I don't know what to tell you. Bottom line is simply this. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the Bible... I've had them tell me, I don't care what the Bible says, you can't deny my experience. Okay. Then you don't have faith, fact, and feeling. You got faith and you got feelings, but no facts. I never met one who had a, any kind of uh, final authority uh, in their life. I'll tell you something else. I never found one that ever had a complete uh, and a total understanding of church history and ever understood it. No charismatic's a serious Bible student. He couldn't lay out 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 if you put a gun to his head. We talked about it the other night. They talk about an unknown tongue, the unknown tongue, the unknown tongue. And I showed you in the Bible that the unknown tongues put in our words in italics. There isn't a charismatic on planet Earth, Venus, Mars, or Saturn, who knows why the word unknown is put in italics in your Bible. And if they did, there wouldn't be charismatics anymore. But you know what? I got a Bible. That's doctrine. It divides truth from error. It lays out what God's specific teaching is on something. And if you don't go with the facts, you go with your feelings. I'm not mad at you. Go get a burger after church. I'm with you. Come on down to restart. I'll give you, a, I'll give you one of our famous hot dogs. Now, the charismatic movement starts around 1900. It starts in Topeka, Kansas. 
and then out to the Azula Street Mission. It's picked up by the full gospel business and association in the 20s and the 30s, and, and here it is today. It's started by a woman, Amy McPherson Simpson. It's a complete heresy from start to finish. Now, where orthodoxy and neo, neo-orthodoxy and neo-evangelicalism, as, as goofy as they can be, uh, they at least have their roots in Bible doctrine and they just went away from it. Not so with charismatics. There's no foundation in what they believe. If they don't know church history, if they would know church history, they would know that they're always talking about the book of Acts. And then they're talking about what they do today. You couldn't find anybody on planet Earth that believed what the charismatic church believes today from 200 A.D. to 1900. You could go up through the Dark Ages from 500 to 1500. You go up through the Reformation from 1500. You go to the Philadelphian Church Age from 1600 to 1900. You could go through every period of church history. You could go down to every one of them, every man, every missionary. Everybody was on this planet. There isn't one person in the history of the world that you will find. I will give you a million dollars for every one you find. You're saying you could never get that much money. I could get it together for you could find the people. They're not there. And they don't know that because it's not built on fact, it's built on feelings. Now, many forms of the charismatic movement. You have the Pentecostals. They base theirs on Acts chapter 2. You have the full gospel. That means that you and I don't have the real gospel. We only got partial gospel. They believe you get saved and then you pray later and get all the Holy Spirit. You get the full gospel, see? You got called Berean Baptists. Sometimes they're called Free Will Baptists. They're charismatic. Hardshell Baptists. They're charismatic. Uh, the Rock, the River, all those places are charismatic. IHOP, International IHOP, that's charismatic. I mean, sometimes you find Four Square Church, you know, uh, that's a charismatic church. It's Four Square built on the four concept of Christ, you know, he's Savior, he's, uh, he's, uh, his baptism, his healing, and his soon coming king. So they call it a Four Square. My old grandma said, never go to the Four Square Church. I said, why, grandma? She says, go to the church at the round table. I said, why? Devil can't corner you there. Oh. My grandma was a wise woman. They vary in their beliefs. Some of them preach in tongues. Some of them preach in unknown tongues. Some of them do spiritual dances. I had a lady the other couple weeks ago came in to see me, and she was getting all kinds of problems from her coming to our church here, getting all kinds of problems from her mom, and she's having some issues in her life, and her mom kept beating her over the head and saying, the reason why you don't get answered your prayer, you're not doing your spiritual dances well enough. <laughs> some of them believe in healing. Some of them believe in snake handling out of Mark chapter 16. They all believe you can lose your salvation. You know, there's many churches of God, honestly, and many assemblies of God that are, that are really good people, and they're pretty fundamental. They really are. But you get, I mean, they, get, they come in all, I mean, they come weird. I'm from Canton, Ohio. Uh, in Canton, Ohio, we had a large charismatic church there, and this shows you how stupid it gets. Large charismatic church gets so, so weird that two guys opened up a full, gas, full gospel gas station. Your car comes in and has burns oil. They lay hands on the engine and your oil is fixed. It doesn't burn oil anymore. I'm not kidding you. Full gospel gas station. And people went in there like they were getting free donuts. I don't know what to tell you. I went to one of the things one time and sat down there. Somebody invited me and I went. I, I, I'm, I'm good for anything. And a guy got up and gave a testimony. talked about how his little daughter's cat got run over by a car and was dead and she was crying. He went in and laid his hand on it and that cat came back to life. Everybody praising the Lord but me. I hate cats. 
That's not true. Skipper, skipper. That's a private joke with my kids. I can't tell you about it. I have to kill you. Now, all of these four areas, every one of them, had one sole purpose. They were started by the devil to take away Bible doctrine. I'm not saying that all these people are demon-possessed and are in them. Obviously, that's not true. There are some very good people in it. If you got a grandma, you got a brother or an aunt or an uncle and they're into that, I'm in no way suggesting that they're demon-possessed and they're lost. I'm not. But I am telling you they're confused. The bottom line is doctrine is the bottom line. You can't get away that all, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, and the first thing it's profitable for is doctrine. Doctrine separates truth from error. Doctrine lets you know and me know and this church know what we stand for. And in a world where it's, everybody's progressive, in a world that everybody is absolutely going their own way, in a world where in churches there's no king in Israel, and in a world where homosexuality is being accepted, and, and pretty soon, I mean, on the news, it's going to be a, the big announcement is going to be so-and-so came out and made the announcement today. He came out of the closet. Well, what you did? Yeah, he did. He, he's straight. That's where it's going. And as I said, go back to 2 Kings chapter 23. Look what happened when it got accepted as a normal lifestyle with the nation of Israel. And so goes Israel, so goes the church. Doctrine is what you have to have. I'm not trying to be mean about it. I, I, I don't care. What a church does is their own business. It's none of my business. I'm not mad at anybody. But this is my church And I told you last week in the verse that I gave you in Timothy that the job of the church is to keep the doctrine that God gave you and you save yourself and then save others from getting caught up in the false doctrine. You have to understand that when you let leaven in, it it, it takes over everything. And that's where we're at. That's exactly what has taken place. Now, the next week when we get together, I'm going to show you the I'm going to show you the main Bible doctrines that have been changed. The f- main Bible doctrines that churches once held to. That 150 years ago, they were absolutely bedrock on them. That 120 years ago, they were absolutely firm on them. Everybody, no matter what you were, some of the greatest Bible teaching, Bible preaching men you ever saw were Methodists. Sham Jones, Bob Jones Sr., they had doctrine. Why not today? Martin Luther started the Lutheran church. And when he started the Lutheran church, he broke with the Roman Catholic church over one issue, baptism regeneration. And yet if you walk into any Lutheran church today, they teach baptism regeneration. What happened from where Luther's broke with it to how we got to where we're at? How did we go regress? We're not progressing, we're regressing. He left because of that heresy, and now he said... The just shall live by faith. He himself got saved, started the great reformation that kicked the door open to the whole world trusting Christ as their own personal Savior. And now that same church that he founded is right back to the heretical teaching that he left over. And nobody even seems to care. Why is that? It's because there's no doctrine. We've had generation after generation after generation after generation of men and women taking that doctrine from us, and now we can't discern what's right and what's wrong. 
So churches say, well, we're going to have a gay pastor. Well, sister so-and-so, she's a lesbian, but we're going to have her teach this. She's going to be a deacon. Or we're going to be, let her be a pastor. And nobody even understands why. Because we've been progressive. We want, to, we want to accept everybody. We want to let everybody in. We want everybody to come and feel comfortable here. I don't want everybody feeling comfortable here this morning. I don't. I want the Holy Spirit of God to walk up and down these aisles and tap you on your forehead. I want you to look deep inside yourself whenever that message preached, not because I'm preaching, because it's coming from an absolute standard. I want it to penetrate down to the very depths of your soul and to search yourself out. I don't want you sitting here where everything is so nice and fuzzy and warm and not cozy that you just get a nice fuzzy feeling and never get convicted about anything. That isn't going to do you any good. We're all sinners. We all have things in our lives and we all need accountability. And I can't keep people accountable, nor anybody will be accountable when there isn't an absolute final authority that keeps us all accountable. It has to be the Bible. That's why we stand on it. That's why we'll never change our position. I know where my roots are doctrinally. I know where I came from. My home church, Canton Baptist Temple, Harold Henniger was the pastor there. He's one of J. Frank Norris's boys. That makes J. Frank Norris my spiritual grandfather. I used to ask Dr. Henniger, I'd say, Doc, what was it like to be with J. Frank Norris? He'd say, oh, man, it was wild. He said, when we finally got our thing down there, he had a radio program every, every day, and we'd be walking through the campus, and he'd be on his way over there, and he'd look around, and he'd grab somebody, and he'd say, come on, you're preaching today, and he'd put them on the radio. He was a wild, he was called a Texas tornado, man. I mean, he would tear it up. One guy, time I got, he preached on everything against everybody that was wrong. I mean, he was the most hated man in America. There were times when somebody said, J. Frank North, don't you know that downtown they're having a big rally and they want to hang you and they got a rope down there and they're going to come out to get you? You know what he did? Most pastors would get out of town. He drove right down to that crowd and got up on that back of somebody's pickup truck and preached the gospel to them and 20 guys got saved. He was something else. He had a guy one time that was, uh, that was uh, he was preaching against liquor. And one guy, a guy in the time was a big bootlegger and all those things. And he was talking about J. Frank Norris and trying to slander him. and said, I'm going to kill him and I'm going to have him wiped out. The guy was driving down the street one day or one night with two of his girlfriends in the car. He was married. Two of his girlfriends in the car going down there and turned the corner. They're all drunk as a skunk. Turned that thing. The car hit a big old thing. People all over the place. The guy was splattered all over the place. Oh, Jane Forrest went down, picked up a piece of his brain, put it in a mason jar, screwed it up, and put it on the pulpit on Sunday morning and preached on the wages of sin is death. Try that today. You couldn't get away with that if you did somebody's tonsils. He was something else. Guy called him up on the phone one time. He said, you blankety-blank preacher, I'm going to come over and blow your blankety-blank head off. J. Frank Norris said, I'll be here to blankety-blank 3 o'clock. <laughs> Guy went into his office, pulled out a gun, dole J. Frank Norris out, drew him and shot him in his own office right there. He, from that point on, he was called a six-shooting preacher. Something else. I don't agree with everything he did. You come in my office and say you're going to kill me, I wouldn't shoot you. I just get some of you women's chocolate chip cookies that you're bringing here and give you them. They'd kill you on a heartbeat. <laughs> I don't agree with everything you did. I, I, I wouldn't say to you young guys, be like him. I wouldn't. I don't want to be like him. I'm not him. But there's one thing about him that he did for me. He instilled into me that we have to stand for something. And I may not stand the same way he did, 
You can slander me all you want. You get in a car wreck, I'm not going to ask the undertaker for part of your brain. Simply before they're taking so long to find it. <clears throat> That's not my style. I- I'm not going to do things like that. But that was his style. But he took on everybody that came on. You know why he took them on? He took them on because the whole Baptist world was in apostasy and J. Frank Norris took them all on for one reason at the end of the day. And when God needed a a nuclear power sledgehammer to break the back of the Southern Baptist Church and break the big cronies and go toe-to-toe with them, he found it in a nuclear power sledgehammer called J. Frank Norris. But he did it at the end of the day for one reason, folks, one reason. Don't criticize him too much. Don't think of the things that I say and discount him as some wild man. He did it at the end of the day for one reason, and that is that you and I could have the truth that we have today because without him, we wouldn't have it. Next week, I'm going to show you the, I'm going to show you the, the major doctrine that they throw out that once they believe, now they don't believe him anymore. Well, let's have a word of prayer. There'll be no meeting today for the restart people. Show up down there at quarter till, and we'll get uh, it restart. You know what's going on. The teams aren't going out today. Uh, Christmas people want to meet up front here.